They don't come here to attack us because we're rich and we're free. They come and they, and they attack us because we're over there. We don't need to go populist left or populist right. We don't need to embrace neo-Marxism or neo-fascism, these disastrous movements from the 20th century. Turns out the answer is pretty much our Bill of Rights, our story. Embrace freedom. That's the answer. And if the LP has a purpose, it's not to put people to sleep. It's to wake them up. We're here because we love liberty. And we're here because we hate injustice. We are here to save mankind. We are here to fight. Join us, the Libertarian Party, in perhaps the most exciting, grandest endeavor in history, the restoration of American liberty. Ideas spread, they can't stop them. An idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by any army or any government. Hello and welcome to episode 59 of Decentralized Revolution, a podcast from the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus and Mises PAC. I'm Aaron Harris and I'm your host, Many apologies for the gap between uh, this episode and the last one. Sometimes schedules just don't line up, and I've just had all kinds of bad luck on that front the last couple of weeks with my schedule and and with some of the people I've been trying to book. Uh, the good news is is a few things lined up uh, well, and uh, uh, we have a great guest today whom I'll introduce in a moment. And we have two really great guests lined up uh, so that we should have two more episodes posted in the week, week and a half uh, from the time this one is released. Uh, Episode 60's guest is the great libertarian journalist who I've been reading for 25 years or more, and that's James Bovard. He, uh, you see his stuff over at the Libertarian Institute a lot as well as uh, publications all across the country. That episode's already recorded. And then episode 61, I'm really happy about. I've got that scheduled to record on Monday, August 9th. And that's with uh, one of the very, very few decent Republicans in politics today. And um, I'm talking about my mayor here in Knox County, Tennessee, and that's Glenn Jacobs. So look out for that uh, here in the next week or so. My guest today is Patrick Newman. He's an assistant professor of economics at Florida Southern University. He's a Mises Institute fellow, and he's perhaps most famous in our circles for reconstructing and editing two just great works, two previously lost works by Murray Rothbard that uh, uh, Murray left uh, incomplete at the time of his uh, unexpected death in the mid-90s. And uh, Patrick reconstructed from Murray's notes the fifth volume of Rothbard's Conceived in Liberty, which is a history of early America from a libertarian perspective, and uh, also a book called The Progressive Era, and uh, recommend those uh, both very highly, and we wouldn't have those without Patrick Newman. We'll have links to both of those books on this episode's show notes page at decentralizedrevolution.com slash 59. Also on that page is a link to information about tickets to the Take Human Action Tour pilot event that we're having on Saturday, October 2nd in Fairfax, Virginia. It's near the campus of George Mason University, where, which is where Patrick Newman earned his PhD. And Patrick just joined the lineup uh, for that event. He's going to be there, one of our lecturers that day, along with Maj Toure, Michael Rechtenwald, Scott Horton, Michael Bolden, and Tom Woods. And then after all those great speakers during the day, those are free uh, to anyone who signs up. Uh, We've got an after party that evening with comedy from Dave Smith and Robbie Bernstein. And I'm told, Michael Heiss told me a day or so ago that this event is getting close to capacity as far as what the hotel is uh, wanting us to keep to. So as you hear this, you want to head over to decentralizedrevolution.com slash 59. Follow the link there to reserve your free spot for the lectures and uh, get your $25 ticket for the after party. Not bad to hear uh, a couple decent comedians, Dave Smith and Robbie Bernstein, and get to hang out with a bunch of other Meekocks. I'll be there too. I'd love to see you there so we can shake hands and say howdy. Now, I hope you enjoy my talk with Patrick Newman. Patrick Newman, welcome to Decentralized Revolution. Thank you so much for having me on. 
tell us, uh, a lot of people know who you are. They've heard you on other podcasts or read your stuff on Mises.org. Uh, just tell us a little bit uh, of, of who you are, how you got to be uh, interested in the things you're interested in. Yeah, sure. So I'm a uh, professor. I, I teach at Florida, Florida Southern College. I'm also a fellow of the Mises Institute organization I've worked with uh, for several years. Uh, they've done a lot for me. It's, it's a great place. Uh, so I'm very big in Austrian economics, uh, sort of libertarian economic history. Uh, I originally got into all of this uh, during the financial crisis, so the last economic downturn. Uh, in 2008, I was a senior in high school. And I didn't know what was going on with the world. And just by uh, by a miracle, I guess you could say, I stumbled upon Ron Paul's The Revolution and Manifesto. And the rest, uh, as you could say, was, was history. I immediately found out about Mises.org. Uh, subsequently knew I wanted to become a professor. And yeah, I've basically been uh, really involved and immersed in these ideas ever since. So what made you choose the economics uh side of things specifically some people when they read ron paul they may you know economics is a big part of what he talks about uh but some people become you know libertarians and choose to 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 do something else what was it about economics specifically was it coming out of just the turmoil of the financial crisis and you figured out it's fun to figure out why this is happening or yeah, so that's a good question. Uh, I was just interested in economics, I think, because I sort of had somewhat of a business background. I actually didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, in 2010, if you if you spoke to me then, or even really until about early 2011, I didn't really know if I wanted to go, say, like the Peter Schiff route, or, oh, do business, like applied Austrian economics for business, et cetera. Uh, I was actually learning Chinese at that time, et cetera, or do more of a traditional okay, talk about the ideas, explain them, and so on. And I eventually sided with that. I think it was just the school I was at, and I was in college, and I was just really interested. I really like reading. I still do, uh, and just talking about it. So I wanted to do economics. Uh, that at least is my base. Uh, you know, for, for, for activism, et cetera, uh, I said, well, I want to push that back a little bit just until I sort of have that found foundation, and I've kind of made a name for myself. And publications and, and so on. So where did you go to undergrad, graduate school? What's your academic path to where you are now? So I uh, I, I finished my undergraduate at Rutgers University. Uh, so this is in New Brunswick, uh, in New Jersey. Uh, there's actually on the economics faculty some uh, quasi-Austrian travelers, you could say, not really Austrian economists, as they were familiar with it, particularly over like monetary history and so on. Uh, Dr. Uh, Joe Salerno, who's the academic vice president of the Mises Institute, he actually got his PhD at Rutgers and his dissertation advisor, Hugh Rockoff, was also one of my uh, professors. Uh, he was still teaching and I believe he still is teaching. Uh, so I got my undergraduate at Rutgers. Then I got my PhD at George Mason University. So I, uh, my dissertation advisor was uh, Larry White. I was also very close with Peter Betke and so on. And then by uh, by good fortune, I guess you could say, I uh, was able to get a job uh, as a visiting assistant professor at Florida Gulf Coast University down in Fort Myers on the western coast of Florida. And now I'm currently at Florida Southern College in Lakeland. Uh, I live in Tampa. So. Okay. So here's a question that I, I like to ask Austrian economists. Um because when I try to explain what Austrian economics is, and I'm not an economics expert, uh, my degrees are in political science and journalism, uh, but I'm, you know, fairly moderately well read uh, from a layman's perspective in Austrian economics. And I kind of came at things, uh, I kind of came through the Milton Friedman route before I found, uh, you know, Rothbard on economics. And I, I find this both with people who are not very political and don't know much about economics, people like my wife, who's just a normal person and is, is not interested in all this stuff. Uh, but when I try to explain to her and also when I try to explain to like, you know, free market Republicans, uh, those type of people, I have a hard time explaining why Austrian economics is better uh, because I mean, I think I do a good job explaining it, but it doesn't seem to 
come through sometimes because the, the response I get a lot is, well, how could all the mainstream economics profession be, you're saying they're basically totally wrong on some fundamental stuff. How, how is that possible? Aren't you the weird one? Because, you know, you know, there's a, you know, maybe they're Keynesian, maybe they're Friedmanite or whatever, but they all kind of agree on certain things. Uh, how do you, um, like in talking to students and talking to lay people, how do you explain why, um, what is a, a, a big minority viewpoint, why you think that is the right way to approach economics? Yeah, sure. So traditionally, if you, if you have a you know, so-called elevator pitch of at least what uh, Austrian economics is, you know, I would say, well, it's the, you know, you could go into all the various tenets, but the main things I would, I would say is that it, it, it studies economics uh, from basically logical deductions from self-evident observations, realistic observations. It emphasizes entrepreneurship and uncertainty. So acting in a world of disequilibrium uh, discusses the, the, the structure of production so the fact that all these capital goods basically interlock in sort of like this puzzle, uh, it analyzes basically uh, government intervention by looking at government failures uh, and you know, not just realizing the market's not perfect, but the government is, 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 uh, is less perfect, you could say. Uh, and then we can go into the way it looks at, at money and the particular uh, monetary transmission mechanism and so on. But the main thing is, even that, I guess, might be a little long for an elevator pitch, is that it emphasizes entrepreneurship uh, and basically uh, how the real world actually operates. OK, so you'd say, all right, how is this heterodox view that doesn't use mathematical models, talks about the entrepreneurship, talks about the capital good structure, analyzes all sorts of problems with monetary policy and government policy, et cetera. Uh, why are, are, are us crazies, so to speak, on the outside? Uh, and other uh, more dominant uh, economists are on the inside. Yeah, it's obviously tough uh, mentioning that point. The, the first is that, well, Austrian economics, uh, at, le at least uh, similar, you could say, laissez-faire economists at various points in time were the mainstream. Uh, they were dominant uh, in several uh, countries at various points in time, including the uh, Austrian uh, economists. Uh, Bamba Verk was about the second most famous economist uh, in the early 1900s. F.A. Hayek, uh, the most famous economist until John Maynard Keynes came along and so on. The actual reason why you're no longer the, uh, the, the, the dominant, um, you could say, uh, laissez-faire economists in general or just you know, Austrian economists is, is, is really it goes down to a history argument is that why you intellectuals support socialism? Why are most intellectuals interventionists? And this is something I, t I write about in my own research. I, I, I tell this to students, uh, to laymen, et cetera, et cetera, is that intellectuals support government intervention because that's how their bread is buttered, so to speak. So uh, even Friedman said you're not going to get very far in monetary economics if you criticize the biggest employer. Right. The Federal Reserve. Right. So most economists are going to be pro Fed. Most economists are going to be pro government intervention because they're either working for the government or they're working at a large state school uh, that depends on government institution, government resources. This really only became a main feature of the economy during the progressive era and especially up through the 1940s and World War II uh, and so on. So, you know, Austrian economics is something different. It's about the real world, emphasizes entrepreneurship, emphasizes the, the mechanisms of the market. And it's sort of been sidelined because, well, uh, it doesn't really cater to any special interests. Uh, it's not catering to the powers that be, uh, you know, and, and it's supporting various government intervention in return for getting some sort of academic or institutional support down the road. So why uh, I have two questions in different, uh, uh, directions. Talk about, I guess, why, um, empirical, you know, that's one thing I get, uh, people who are, especially younger people who are maybe studying economics and maybe they're kind of Friedmanite. They're really, I've gotten some pushback. It's like, Oh, you know, you're just not empirical. We do these models. That's what science is. You have to be able to verify, uh, all this stuff. Is it something, um, and I know kind of the Austrian uh, critique of that. So you can restate that, but like, have you, um, 
when you talk about that with other people who kind of know both sides of stuff, what, what makes them really come down on the, what do you think it is that makes them so wedded to the, Hey, it's gotta be empirical and falsifiable and all that stuff. Yeah. It's a great question because the, the classic uh, sort of procedure of most science is you could say the scientific method. So you form a hypothesis, then you try and have some sort of experiment, you do some study, then simply speaking, you either verify or you falsify the hypothesis, or at least you, you don't falsify it yet, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Uh, this is, you could say, the procedure of most economists. Though they do form their theories using deduction, uh, it's generally using sort of like these unrealistic assumptions. But then Friedman most famously said, well, as long as it predicts, it's okay. So you could structure various tests and that's how you would apply certain theories or see if they are uh, they're appropriate for the situation, et cetera. Austrians start from these realistic axioms and they build these logically true theories. So you don't, the Austrians say you don't need to test the law of demand, that a decrease in price increases the quantity demanded. We just simply know this from the action axiom and some simple subsidiary assumptions. Uh, traditional economists would say, well, uh, we need to test it because actually according to some circumstances, it might not hold blah, 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 blah. Uh, so the Friedman, Friedman, uh, Milton Friedman, and uh, someone who's, who's, whose work I immensely respect, I, you know, free to choose, although I have some disagreements with it. I do assign parts of it. I think it's a great uh, exposition of libertarianism, particularly some of the empirical studies and, and, and so on. Uh, had he, him, him and Murray Rothbard had many back and forths, you could say, uh, and, and they had somewhat of an acrimonious uh, relationship on this. But the Austrians would say, this is that, that that procedure is appropriate for the natural sciences, for the hard, hard sciences. And many scientists, uh, including economists now, they're, they're trying to in, ape the natural scientists. They're trying to ape the natural sciences saying, well, we're all very fancy. Look at us. We have these equations. We have these models. Uh, we've got all these precise, you know, tests and et cetera. It's just like we're doing physics experiments or uh, you know, the, the, the frontier now, as you could say, artificial intelligence, computer science, and so on. I myself, when I was an undergraduate, I also I not only majored in economics, I also majored in mathematics. So you see this a lot, particularly with engineering and so on. Um, and so you have a lot of economists that say, well, if, if we're not doing that, that, that means we're soft, we're mushy. It's like we're like English. And that means we're just not scientific. Uh, we can't uh, one, we can't get as many government research grants uh, for not doing all of these fancy experiments and in and, and seeming, you know, like with public policy or, or whatever. And then two, it's just, well, we're, we're, this is how science evolves. Science becomes more mathematical, becomes more quantitative and so on. And again, that's just from a, a misconception that human action is different from, uh, you know, from, from uh, the hard sciences. Mises would often joke that if you throw a stone into a pond, it sinks. But if you throw a human into a pond, it has to decide whether or not it sinks or swims. Humans have free will. There are no quantitative constants in human action, like in physics or other sciences, uh, because of this important point that we at least perceive that we have free will. So there are some big differences. This doesn't mean that empirical investigations are unimportant for Austrians. I myself consider myself a, uh, an Austrian economist, uh, but I also do a lot of work in, in economic history illustrating the, the theories of Austrian economics. It just means that this economic history doesn't test the theory. Uh, it doesn't uh, verify it. It only illustrates it. And if it doesn't, then that means there's something else occurring uh, alongside it, you know, at the same time. So that's really the task of the historian to under. Uh, uncover some of this stuff. But it's really a lot of people just say, oh, well, economics is quantitative. It's got to be like this because it's got to be like the other sciences. And if Austrian economics isn't that, then it's not a science. Right. People think uh, economics, they think, well, that's money and you count money with numbers. So it has to be mathematical, I think. you know, yeah. um, I think sometimes when people when I tell people I'm somewhat interested in economics, they like ask me for stock tips and stuff like that. And I'm like, no, that's yeah. kind of similar, but not really. Um, one thing I think that, um, again, having these uh, discussions with people, um, uh, and I should say a lot of times it's uh, uh, been uh, people within like the Libertarian Party who are younger uh, people who are, are not Austrians. Um, and 
one thing liber- a lot of libertarians are good at, and maybe we're too good sometimes, is sort of questioning the motives of people and saying, well, of course he thinks that way because, as you said, you know, the government uh, uh, is not going to give contracts to uh, people or scholarships and endowments and all that to people who, who challenge them. Um, that's kind of a hard pill for some people to swallow. They don't even want to consider it that that people in academia are not um, just committed to the abstract pursuit of the truth. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's a great point, because what you often hear is that, oh, if, if, say, some academic or some intellectual or some organization or whatever is funded by a business, then, oh, it's clearly they're in the pockets of the corporation, they're just out for the business, you know, profits, whatever, they're just a shill and so on. That may be true. You know, obviously, you can't rule that out. But what's almost always ruled out, seemingly, ironically, a priori, it's just it's not even subject to testing, is that, well, any the politicians, or at least the right politicians, so to speak, or, you know, I guess the, the good politicians, the, they're, they're public interested in intellectuals working for the government. So your typical civil service bureaucrat or your typical uh, academic at a university, et cetera, that is providing that is teaching students or providing uh, policy advice to relevant government officials, et cetera, they are just simply angels, you know, and they are altruists. They are not looking out for themselves. So when a bureaucracy advocates increased funding for itself, it's only done with, well, we're just here to, you know, in the public interest, we're just here to help the people. Uh, It's never, well, they're just trying to increase their own control or increase their own line, their own pockets, so to speak. Uh, but if a business is lobbying for decreased taxes, this is just well, then it's clearly it's just capitalist greed and so on. And, yeah, it really just comes to people. And it's really partially brought up through the the K through 12 public education system, et cetera, that, you know, government is just this wise steward of 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 our lives. Capitalism is evil. The market's evil. Uh, there are, you know, um, certain people are not self-interested. Uh, you know, they, they are the ones who work in the government, et cetera. And it, yeah, it comes as a shock or it comes as, oh, well, you're just saying that that's not convincing. And yeah, you obviously then you have to, you know, show evidence that various, you know, officials are, are self-interested or et cetera. But then that just sort of gets dismissed. It, it, it's a tough pill for a lot of people to swallow because it just challenges so many of their, uh, you know, their, 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 their fundamental, uh, you know, conceptions about things. Do you think most people in academia are aware of this or do they think they're, you know, disinterestedly, disinterestedly pursuing the truth? Do they kind of know or really know or what, what sense do you get? I think there's certainly just like there's obviously a spectrum of people. There are genuinely people who are altruistic in the world and there are genuinely people who are greedy. You know, there's clearly a spectrum. I would say everyone in some sense, in a significant sense, is self-interested. I think a lot of people have have uh, at least like I would say sometimes like your lower level uh, officials in academia or in, in government. They're like, well, I'm just acting in the public interest. This is just my you know, and, and so are my superiors. I think as you move up, you uh, see more of that self-interested, or at least they're not going to say it. The stated reason is always public interest. The actual reason is usually a special interest of, well, you're just trying to favor some donor, et cetera. This kind of goes to uh, what F.A. Hayek, you know, often said is why the worst get on top. <laughs> so in order for you to rise through the government, you kind of have to start to be more self-interested. You have to think about yourself more uh, and all right, how am I going to do certain things that will advance my own career? And then it really does become more of a uh, of, of, of a self-interest. And, and, oh, you're just trying to do something to enhance your own political goals and to cater to some special interests, et cetera. But of course, you always have to have sort of that 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 disguise, that Janus face, that split face, because even if you're a tippy top government official or, or an academic or uh, you know, a politician, whatever, you always have to advocate some policies as, as promoting the public interest. You can't say a special interest or you're, you know, the people are going to get their pitchforks out. Yeah. Let, let's talk a little bit about the 2008 crash, which you say, you know, was a big factor in you getting interested in this stuff. We're 12, 13 years on now. Have you done specific work in this area, looking back and maybe applying Austrian stuff to this? I know probably everybody listening to this has read 
Tom Woods meltdown, which he kind of did in the moment. Uh, so ha what have you and other Austrians found out or learned or realized about that in these intervening dozen years? And what has the, the popular mainstream, what are they saying now about, about what happened 12 years ago? Yes, that's a great question. Um, so I was obviously, like I said, I got very interested. One of the first books I read when it came out was Meltdown. Uh, and that was very influential with me. I think the biggest thing, at least sort of what I've learned uh, in particular, as well as other Austrian economists. So one, if you, if you were if you were during if you're in the movement, so to speak, during this time period, Austrians were saying, well, the massive Federal Reserve monetary expansion was going to cause hyperinflation or at least very large uh, price increases reported in the CPI, consumer price index, et cetera. Uh, that did not materialize. The economy recovered slowly, uh, less than mainstream, uh, slower, more sluggish than mainstream for uh, economists expected, but it still recovered nonetheless. Okay, so why did this occur? So at least going from the Austrian perspective, well, th there's really two reasons I would say that you didn't get the high inflation uh, and you got a somewhat, you got a weak economic recovery at least was that the first is that, well, you didn't actually get an increase in the money supply so much uh, in that the, the reserves just stayed in the banking system for the first time, really, since like the early 1930s, uh, banks started to hold large amounts of excess reserves. So they weren't actually using it to make loans and increase the money supply and so on. This was in large part due to the payment of interest uh, on excess reserves at the Fed. This is a new policy tool that was literally created in uh, like the fall of 2008. Uh, and then it, it started to be used more and more. And that was sort of a really big reason uh, as to those banking reserves really just kind of shored up the banking system. They didn't actually lead to uh, any sort of uh, leakage, so to speak, in the actual economy. Uh, and then the second is, this is an important thing I've, I've sort of realized over the years, uh, the past couple of years, I actually had a paper working on this, I was going to present it, uh, but COVID just simply just kind of swamped all of this out, was that one of the reasons why I think you at least saw low interest rates and no inflation, at least some of an economic recovery, is that especially after 2008, you saw a, a huge decrease in time preferences or an increase in savings. This is what a lot of people have uh, realized that as the, the baby boomers, we're, we're living in a world of an aging population. So baby boomers are getting older. And because of declining birth rates, as they move through their life cycle, it's actually pushing the average age up. Right. And traditionally in 2008 and beyond, the baby boomers started to retire. They started to enter their 60s and so on. At the beginning of your retirement phase, you actually save more because in preparation for the 30 or so odd years you're going to be, you at least plan on, on, on living you know, as a retired individual. So this led to uh, basically really a large increase in savings that sort of quasi lifted the economy, but it didn't really uh, kept inflation down. Um, you know, again, there was no, there wasn't really a whole lot, like as much credit expansion past the financial crisis and so on. Now, as actually we move into the 2020s and beyond, what a lot of these scholars are saying is that as the baby boomers get older in your 70s and 80s, then you just start to consume. So then time preferences go through the roof. Um, that, that's what I would say is kind of the main thing I've learned from the financial crisis, the importance of Federal Reserve, like interest on excess reserves, and then uh, how age and time preferences affect, uh, obviously, interest rates and the economy and so on. Mainstream economists have, they've learned from the crisis, well, that, well at least they, they think they have, in that they argue that, well, the reason why we recovered so slowly was just there wasn't enough stimulus, right? It's like, well, we didn't just stimulate enough, and this is kind of animating current policy to sort of overkill the stimulus to bring us back to a, a quick recovery. Uh, so I would really say kind of like the fundamental, uh, obviously from an Austrian mainstream economist, haven't really learned a whole lot. Uh, it's just sort of setting us up for the next kind of financial crisis, so to speak. So is the, do the mainstream people still kind of the, the orthodox explanation of the crisis was that, you know, dere deregulation and business greed caused it? Is that still the 
More or less. Uh, you'll, oh, it was deregulation. It was uh, banks manipulating people in the housing market and so on. Uh, there's There's been uh, some good research by like, a issue, certainly not Austrians, you would say, sort of mainstream economists, book Fragile by, by Design uh, by Charles Calamiris. Uh, and and, uh, uh, and and another another person who goes through actually explains how the government was subsidizing risk and all of these bad loans and and, and, and so on. Um, but yeah, most economists would say, well, it was a housing bubble and uh, the Federal Reserve had nothing to do with it. And you know, this is why ultimately Fannie and Freddie, uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac haven't really been reformed in any way. Too big to fail hasn't really gone away. Uh, you know, like the Dodd-Frank Act that really just kind of strengthened some of the leading banks and gave them more kind of financial protection. Uh, and this is, in a sense, it's it's why you see now uh, there, there's um, sort of the same misguided housing policies uh, are being promoted. You know, housing is a right. People don't have a right to evict other people, et cetera. Everyone should get a loan, should be able to afford a house, blah, 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 blah. It's the same thing. Yeah. So again, it's capitalism. Capitalism caused the financial crisis. Capitalism caused COVID. You know, it causes everything. So uh, now coming up to the the COVID era, uh, one thing I think that it's starting to basically be a topic of conversation, even among, you know, non-libertarians is inflation. Like I have seen, I live in Knoxville, Tennessee. I have seen uh, uh, restaurants here and there that, you know, you can tell they've recently altered their menus to, uh, you know, put in new prices. And uh, I've seen a couple of, you know, explanatory notes like, oh, sorry, we raised the price on this dish, but, but we have to. So Mm -hmm. inflation. And then I think everybody saw, a lot of people saw there was a CNBC headline uh, two or three weeks ago or four, said, uh, hey, the upside of inflation is uh, higher, higher, higher wages. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. so inflation is starting to be talked about. And then we've heard all this, you know, uh, we in a cliched way, we say money printing, but that's not really what's been going on. But money creation, you know, I see charts that so much has been created over the last couple of years. What mm-hmm. exactly is going on in the economy now? How is that different or alike to 2008? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's certainly a big discussion. Uh, it, it, so basically what happened is the Federal Reserve, um, obviously during COVID, particularly March and April of 2020, they, they printed an immense amount of money. And this was different than the traditional mechanism of injecting reserves in the banking system. They were literally just making loans uh, or incentivizing banks to make loans to uh, businesses and people, you know, consumers got stimulus checks, et cetera. So unlike the financial crisis, there was a tremendous increase in the money supply. M2 has increased, you know, increased by about like 25% in 2020. It's on track to increase by about 15% in 2021. Uh, the, the, the question is sort of, well, all right, now is it actually going to be spent? So as the economy has reopened, uh, in succession, uh, really starting in, in April, May, and June, and so on, uh, people have been going out and spending more. Uh, we're, we're sort of in spending back to uh, levels that we were previously spending. And this is pushing up prices. Now, uh, the traditional narrative is that this is what's known as a transitory supply shock. You hear about this like bottlenecks and shortages and, well, as the businesses are going back to normal, there are it's hard for them to get certain parts because certain parts have been produced during the crisis the most obvious example is like computer chips for cars right like to make the modern cars you have to have a certain type of computer chip and if that's not being made that's going to drive up the prices of real of of regular cars that's causing people to buy more used cars etc so the federal reserve is saying well yes prices are rising but uh they're going to return back to normal uh, you know, later this year or next year, as you know, the economy, the worldwide economy uh, comes back to normal and so on. Undeniably, certain price increases now, or at least before, have been due to like supply shock issues. But what I think more economists are starting to realize, at least what you're starting to see, is inflation is becoming what's known as more broad based. So it's, it's starting to affect all the categories in the producer price index, in the consumer price index, 
Uh, we see it with food. We see it with restaurants. We see it with rent. Uh, I'm happy. I signed my rent contract in, in March. So my, my renewal, right? But, but, but before this, um, you know, so we're, we're, we're starting to see it reflected uh, more broadly. And it's really because of consumers, people have more money. You look at surveys, businesses have a lot of cash with banks. Uh, they're looking to expand into automation and other sorts of technology. Consumers have stimulus checks. They're either using them to pay down debts, which then are going to be spent by another company, or they're going to use it to buy consumer goods and so on. And yeah, this is this is going to drive, this is going to lead to higher prices. So I think it really is, I think the inflation is, is not as transitory as uh, the Fed thinks. People are starting to develop inflationary expectations. I think a lot of people just thought, well, we printed a bunch of money in 2008 and this didn't happen. And we really haven't dealt with inflation in any serious sense since the 70s uh, and early 80s. So they're like, you know, the whole generation of people has, has lived most of their lives without this becoming an issue. So they just think that, well, it's not going to happen. Well, as Murray Rothbard always said, when everyone says something's not going to happen, like, oh, we're never going to have another business cycle. Like, you know, we're going to have another business cycle. Right. So I think in the, for the rest of the year, it really will be interesting. Like, for example, uh, we have the consumer price index. Uh, the data for July being released next week um, to see if this continues. Uh, forecasters have continually underestimated inflation. We've been uh, the average financial analyst has been off. Uh, most recently, they expected prices to rise by like 0.5 percent in June. They rose 0.9 percent. Uh, so it, it really it, it, it's I think it's fundamentally, at least in the broad sectors, it's driven by an increase in spending. And to see if we're really going to get sustained inflation really just is this increase in spending going to occur? Uh, you know, I hate to say it, unfortunately, if the governments decide to restrict spending, you know, through new lockdowns over a Delta variant surge, you know, et cetera, that could lead to, you know, lower inflation in the rest of the year. But if this money keeps being spent, uh, it's going to lead to higher prices. And especially if the government keeps on incentivizing labor not to return to work through unemployment benefits or all sorts of other stuff. So to answer your question again, initially, I think it's transitory. It's supply shock induced, but broad based, I think it's demand side induced. And that's just from the increase in the money supply. Okay. And I know that, uh, uh, you know, we don't claim some people accuse us of saying, uh, as as libertarians or, or Austrians that, you know, we think we have a, a, a magic formula and we can explain everything, including the future. And I know that's not the case, but where do you see the economy a uh, couple of years from now? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, um, I, I think the economy, well, I, I think, assuming I'm correct, I think we're going to have ha higher than average inflation over the next uh, several years. I think we're going to have to adjust to a world where COVID and lockdowns, it's going to be like the war on terror. Uh, for those of us who remember that 20 years ago, uh, I certainly think masks are here to stay uh, during the fall and the winters, and especially at airports and grocery stores and so on. I think uh, I think the economy, there, there's a lot of positive things that can happen, things with like artificial intelligence, electric cars, et cetera. But at the same time, there's a lot of other problems. Uh, you know, we're going to have an increasingly aging population. Uh, there's the specter of higher unemployment, uh, higher inflation. Uh, we have a massive debt to deal with. Our entitlements are, are due, et cetera. Uh, depending on what happens in the rest of the world, I think we could see this is sort of the beginning of America sort of really losing its status as kind of like the world superpower somewhat, depending on what happens with China and other places. I'm not particularly optimistic about the economy over the next couple of years. But of course, you know, you, you got to wait and see or you, you want to see what's going to happen. I do think at least uh, at least if current trends continue uh, inflation I'm not saying hyperinflation, but inflation will be higher than what your average uh, Fed economist uh, or financial analyst has been expecting. Okay. What about uh, unemployment? We've heard a lot of, uh, you know, over the last year and stuff uh, about, you know, uh, what the government is doing as far as, you know, trying to support people. And, you know, with COVID, it's been crazy. What is... Um, uh, what is there anything wrong with the way that 
the media talks about unemployment and how do how do economists look at it and and what are the what's really going on with uh, employment levels uh, right now? Do you think? Yeah, so unemployment really skyrocketed, kind of got fifteen plus percent really briefly, kind of in 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 uh, June, I think in like May or June of last year, simply due to just the government not allowing people to work. Uh, the unemployment rate has undeniably fallen since then, but it's been a, a lot more of a sluggish recovery than uh, what people have estimated or people thought. Uh, I mean, the also with inflation being underestimated, uh, job growth is being overestimated. And actually, tomorrow uh, there's a new jobs report supposed to come out, and people are estimating, you know, it will add like 850,000 jobs. I think the number will be much lower, around like 300,000, but what do I know? Um, it, it, you, you hear about, well, why has there been such a sluggish recovery in the job market? Uh, and it's, oh, p fear of COVID or, well, people have to take care of children and so on. And the unemployment benefits and the stimulus checks that have been given are, are mentioned, but they're either dismissed or there's just like, well, that, that's not the main reason, et cetera. And if you add up all of the stimulus checks, the one in March, 2020, the one in June, the one in March of 2021. There's also been various generous unemployment benefits attached to those. Uh, it's really incentivized a lot of people not to work, particularly in the low wage jobs. So I, 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 I don't know about you, but when I uh, when I was traveling in the summer, um, I, getting service at like a restaurant or a fast food station or et cetera, there was always it always took longer than normal. And I find a hard time believing that. Well, it was COVID, especially when at least then, you know, it was at a very low fear. People who got that people who wanted to get vaccinated in the United States were vaccinated. Uh, you know, you didn't have school anymore, et cetera. Uh, and we'll, we'll see this particularly with what the numbers in July show, because you can make your early. There's, there's no school in July, uh, you know, et cetera. And it, it, it's just this. Oh, well, it's always just due to something else. It's never due to the government's uh, policy. And, and, you know, we're now it's, what's going to happen is, you know, the labor market hasn't recovered or at least the labor force participation rate. A lot of people are just permanently sideline they're just discouraged workers you see a little bit more recovery among uh younger age groups but what's going to happen is we're just simply we're not going to return to our normal unemployment rate the one we had before and it's just going to be like well that's just okay you know well uh, that's the new normal right yeah um i i wanted to uh talk about kind of another that's somewhat um, maybe related to present day is um, uh, I've been thinking and reading a lot uh, recently about the, you know, the social justice stuff and the woke stuff and all that. And um, I, I, other libertarians have said this uh, and I'm not uh, by no means original on this, but I really think that, that the promotion of these sorts of things after, during, and in, in the wake of like the Occupy Wall Street and the Tea Party stuff, I maybe it's just my conspiratorial libertarian brain, but I think the elites kind of saw that and were like, Oh, we need to uh, make sure people don't get united in uh, getting a clearer picture of what's actually happening. So let's inject all this, um, the woke stuff in, and I see, and, and my, my wife is a big Olympics fan. So she's been watching the Olympics and I normally don't watch, any TV except baseball games. And I fast forward through the commercials, but seeing all the commercials during the Olympics and just how woke all these big corporations are, mm -hmm. I see a lot of parallels and I may be totally wrong on this, but I see a, a, a lot of parallels from what I know about the progressive era that uh, progressivism in our textbooks is taught as, you know, one thing, but when you peel back the curtain and really look it, it's basically, you know, the state and the, um, uh, you know, the elites, the, the, the financial, uh, elites kind of grabbing a hold of things and, and using this social movement and this, you know, this thing that people kind of think it's about to, to their own advantage. Am I, am I right in seeing some parallels there? I, I definitely think you're on to something. I, I agree with a lot of what you said. I mean, if, if, um, you know, you think of the Occupy Wall Street in the in the in the Tea Party. I think the Tea Party especially, because that was just seen with like 
oh, these are just a bunch of like uh, white supremacist terrorists or whatever. They're trying to tear down our government, et cetera. Occupy Wall Street was seen as like a nu- nu- nuisance, but it's like, well, they realize the flaws in the capitalist system. Like, you know, they just need to not maybe like vandalize a, a, a park and do all sorts of other stuff, you know, et cetera. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this woke stuff has really started to occur. A lot of social scientists have analyzed it really started to occur after the 2014 midterms and uh, in, in like sort of in preparation for 2016. It preceded uh, Donald Trump in 2015, but it certainly was exacerbated by that. And then the subsequent years, and especially with COVID, uh, it's certainly become a way of controlling people uh, and really kind of twisting them away from the capitalist system. Uh, because if you mentioned like the progressives, the progressives had like this post-millennial zeal where we needed to recreate the world to uh, for all sorts of religious purposes and, and et cetera. And that became sort of secularized. Uh, you see that now where it's same. It's like a similar type of wholesale. Well, we just need to recreate the world. And, you know, the, the I think the a larger kind of trend is that, well, ever since the USSR collapsed, it's kind of realized that, you know, communism and at least hardcore socialism don't work. Right. We could say capitalism or at least crony capitalism, heavily regulated, subsidized, whatever, blah, 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 is superior to the communist system. Uh, at least that's what most uh, even like you're just generic intellectuals will, will realize, at least in terms of economics. So these most intellectuals are communists or they're Marxist in, in various degrees. So they sort of they kind of went back to the drawing board and they said, well, why don't we do this through the Trojan horse of things like racism and sexism and in all sorts of other isms and et cetera, where they say, well, now capitalism is fundamentally, you know, white supremacist and all of this stuff. And in the only way to change is we now need to have these massive, you know, revolution, so to speak, and in the cultural sphere, our workplace and so on. And it's all men's fault and it's all white guys fault. And, and then this is kind of how we, you sort of bring in that communism and that wholesale sort of remaking of society uh, yeah, I think there are absolute parallels. I think it's I think it's a disturbing trend. Um, certainly, like the, the ability are you want to think certain things. OK, you want to say the United States is a fundamentally racist uh, place or blah, 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 blah. OK, you know, but we should at least have the ability to disagree amongst one another and articulate these points and have alternative viewpoints, but that that's just simply not allowed. So it's sort of like if someone's uncomfortable with an idea, then it can't be listened to at all. And it's just the only the current orthodoxy is 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 what's permitted. And yeah, you see that a lot, unfortunately, increasingly in sports and basketball and football, baseball with name changes. You know, like the, the the Washington Redskins, and then they become the Washington Football Team, and now you can't even wear uh, like Native American memorabilia in the, the the stadiums anymore. They they've like ruled that out, at least uh, for the um, the the Washington Football Team now. Uh, you see that the Cleveland the Cleveland Indians are like the Cleveland yeah. Guardians. Yeah, that yeah, that's the stupidest name change uh, yeah. ever. Yeah, yeah, they're the Guardians and. And yeah, you see this, you know, increasingly in the Olympics and it, yeah, it's, it's sort of like a cultural, it's, it's the government really shaping our culture. Now the, the, the anti-capitalists have always been doing this, but now it's just seemingly so much more potent and realizing that I honestly think a large part is because so many people have been taught to just feel guilty. So if you're a white person, you just have to feel innately guilty or innately privileged, especially if you're like a white male. If you're like a white heterosexual male, then you're like the worst thing on the planet, basically, uh, unless you're like a diehard liberal, et cetera. And yeah, it's, it's really unfortunate. Yeah. Um, let's. Uh, yeah, I have a lot of we could go totally off the rails there in a good way. Uh, but uh, I really want to uh, talk about something that. Uh, uh, I wasn't necessarily aware this was uh, uh, what you were working on until I started preparing for this uh, episode. Of course, you know everybody, and I'll have links to the uh, uh, to the to these on the show notes page. Decentralized Revolution slash fifty nine uh, about your work with uh, uh, you know recreating some of uh, Rothbard's uh, stuff, the Cr- Progressive Era book, and I think what the fifth volume of uh, Conceived in Liberty. Uh, I'll also, you've been on Tom Woods talking about that and, uh, I'll post a link to that too. It's, it's pretty fascinating. And, uh, I personally thank you for doing that work because it's, uh, it's really awesome. 
but you've got something else coming out uh, later this year, I think. Um, uh, cronyism, liberty versus power in America, 1607 uh, to 1849. Uh, where'd you get the idea for this? What uh, uh, What's it about? Um, when can we expect it? Give, give us the, the full pitch on this book. Yeah, of course. So uh, thanks for, uh, for for bringing that up, uh, the, the two Rothbard books and then my own book. So um, the, the, at least the initial inspiration was a, a generous donor of the Mises Institute, Hunter Lewis, asked me to write a book on crony capitalism. He was impressed with my work on the progressive era and conceived in liberty and et cetera. And I said, yeah, and, and I, there was a particular story I wanted to tell in early America, sort of continuing the story of conceived in liberty. Uh, I kind of go through the first, you know, it starts at 1607. I, I, I cover the period up through the Constitution, 1789, and about like 100 pages. The rest of the book, or less, about like 80 pages, the rest of the book, it's about like 300 in change, is about the period after. Uh, and I wanted to, I wanted to basically tell this story that Rothbard had described briefly in the Progressive Era and in Four New Liberty, and it's kind of like the the major political parties of the past, particularly like the Jeffersonians and the Jacksonians. Because when we think about cronyism and like special privileges and favors to businesses and so on, you know, when we talk about reform as libertarians now, et cetera, we realize we have a very uphill battle. Back in the day, there was still an uphill battle, but it was a much, it was a much smaller hill uh, because back in the day, you could actually run political parties like mainstream political parties, the Jeffersonian Republicans, the Jacksonian Democrats, the Anti-Federalists, like these guys, they would they would get state offices, they would win the presidency, et cetera. And they actually did make some reforms. You know, if you think of Jackson vetoed the early recharter of the second bank of the United States, uh, you know, uh, Jefferson was able to cut government spending and, and so on, and et cetera. Uh, the question is, of course, well, why did they fail, right? So if we had this, you know, why, why did we fail? And I argue that, well, it's because of the fact that power corrupts, you know, it increases you, you, you have this tendency to engage in cronyism because you can kind of view American history, at least early American history, as this battle between the forces of small government. These are the forces of liberty and the forces of big government. These are the forces of power. And, you know, when liberty wins, you would expect cronyism to decline. When power wins, you'd expect power to increase. Right. So if Hamilton is secretary of the Treasury, you would expect cronyism to go up. But when Jefferson becomes president, you'd expect cronyism to go down. And cronyism did go down, but it ended up increasing sort of after that. And then in the jagged phase, you'd have a decrease in cronyism and then another increase and so on. So the trend was always upwards. Why? Well, it's because power corrupts, as I mentioned, that when even as a libertarian, when you would control the government, you feel this urge to, well, you got to think about the next election. So then you got to cater to these people. Or, oh, well, now, but well, we can actually use this government program. It can be controlled if only with the right people, right? All you need is the right people. It's not the actual program that's the problem. You know, this is the logic, of course. So this is what happened to many of our reformers. So I, I you know, of the past, particularly the Jeffersonians and Jacksonians, who I argue they were dedicated libertarians. Uh, it's just that they made some crucial failures and they dropped the ball in certain places particularly with foreign policy, et cetera. And so that's kind of the gist of the book. I, I go through various special privileges and uh, government policies. I look at who benefited, who was lobbying for them, et cetera. I also analyze the other side, who was fighting them, uh, who was trying to remove these privileges once they were passed, et cetera. And I, I tell the story of, of uh, you know, Jeffersonians versus Hamiltonians, uh, Democrats versus Whigs, Federalists versus anti-federalists, et cetera. And I tell the story of this basically of liberty versus power, right? <laughs> yeah, it sounds pretty fascinating. If you uh need someone like I would love to read it ahead of time and and yeah. have have you on around when it comes out. Uh uh, because that all that stuff is is right up my alley. Um it, let's talk about Jefferson a little bit. When I um uh when I was a teenager, and normally I have a a portrait of Jefferson back there, but I just kind of moved and I mm -hmm. am, am trying to uh, 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 rearrange my office a little bit, but I've got a picture of him. I think he was around in his, not when he was old and not when he uh, wrote the declaration and he's got such a long career and he's written so much stuff, but specifically on his 
presidency. Uh, and I've heard libertarians kind of take, you know, differing uh, hot takes on, on that, that some people are like, oh, he was horrible and other people, he was great. Uh, how would you assess Jefferson's just his presidency? Yeah, so it's a great question. I think his first, it really does come to more or less like a first term, second term kind of. His first term, at least his early years, he was he was pretty he was good. He was he, he was he wasn't as great as some of the radicals at the time hoped he was. But like by our t- term, you know, oh, he 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 didn't get rid of the Bank of the United States, but he at least like privatized it more. He decreased taxes. Uh, he cut government spending. He cut down the military. You know, he reformed the judiciary. Right. It's like it's not like the paradise, but it's like, all right, he's making good progress. Uh, the big issue was was really his second term and really kind of the end, you could say, of his of his first term. And that was the with the second term which was a total disaster. Uh, and that was it was really the Louisiana Purchase. That was the that was just the whole thing that just led the whole uh, thing to go crumbling down. So to purchase this massive amount of land from France, uh, who didn't really even own the land, at least legitimately, according to the contract, they got it from Spain. And, and we can go into all that. Uh, but, you know, Jefferson, it was really kind of like this temptation because he he recognized that this purchase was not constitutional. He wanted to wait and at least get an amendment passed. Right. So according to his strict constructionist principles, which, all right, even uh, the libertarians, all right, he's still spending the money and everything. But at least the amendment is like, you know, it delays things. It constrains it somewhat. But even he didn't do that. Uh, it was he was corrupted sort of by the land, this massive acquisition. And then after that, really, everything just fell apart because then he started to support all these internal improvements to connect his so-called empire of liberty. He wanted to try and get Florida in the south to protect the new land in the south. He wanted to uh, try and get Canada in the north. This led to all of his various, this led to like the Embargo Act, all of his moves towards a war with Great Britain and so on. He, he, was, he was a flawed individual. He was a great theoretician. Uh, he was what was known as an old Republican at heart, but in uh, in his presidency, he was sort of a, uh, straddled in the middle between these ex-Federalist moderates, guys like James Madison, and the hardcore old Republicans like John Randolph. In his presidency, the, the early years were good, then it just steadily deteriorated. So really, it's kind of like if you were to rank the first term of Jefferson, it'd be pretty good by libertarian standards, uh, really like at the top. Uh, you know, uh, close to it. But but then after the Louisiana Purchase in 1803, which is admittedly at the end of his first term, uh, and then um, the second term, uh, it was just a total disaster. The Embargo Act is almost in a way like the closest thing to our lockdowns where it's just like, yeah. well, we're just not going to uh, import or export things on American ships. We're just going to totally shut off the economy, et cetera. And like that's just I mean, that, that, that was just ridiculous. And real quick, uh, explain w- why he did that. So the, the idea, I actually, I talk about this in my book. So your traditional American history, you hear, well, it was, we had to stand up to Great Britain. They were fighting the Napoleonic Wars and they were impressing our, our sailors. So they were stopping American ships on the high seas and saying, oh, you're a British subject. You got to go fight for the British Navy or they were seizing our ships or whatever. And this is you know, Jefferson and Madison, they stood up to this. And then under the Madison administration, we declared war. Uh, Great Britain, this is like June of 1812. This is the famous war, not so famous, just known as the War of 1812. Uh, the real reason sort of leading up to all of this, including with like the Embargo Act, um, was it was really just we the, the, the Republicans by this time, they were corrupted by the land. They really wanted a land war against Canada in Florida. So they wanted to take Spanish Florida in the South, but especially they wanted to take British Canada in the North. Canada at that time referring to basically like the the, the land around the Great Lakes, uh, so to speak, in New York kind of uh, was known as Upper and Lower Canada. So the, the, the impressment issue, as was most wars of conquest, you're not going to advocate it like, oh, yeah, we just want more land. You're going to say, well, we've got to protect democracy. You know, we've got to whatever. It's That was sort of like the cover. So Jefferson said his embargo was a way of deterring war. But it was just at the same time he was doing this, he was increasing the military and literally like amassing forces. One, he was suppressing American citizens from trading peacefully in Canada. But he was preparing like this whole invasion of Canada at the same time that really basically just collapsed 
at the end of his presidency in early 1809, when uh, he, he lost sort of his congressional majority, you could say, to at least pursue this. But it was pursued a couple of years later. But it's really like all this was it was the land. It was the land war. It was yeah. it was a, it was a power grab. Yeah. This may be a, a dumb question, but do you see any linkage between his thoughts about the French Revolution and, and and this period in his presidency, it it makes me like both. You know, Payne was a little bit the same way that some some of the stuff they said about the French Revolution. You're like, ooh, you know, I what are you doing to me, uh, uh, Tom? Here, you know, it's like uh, seems like uh, a little bit out of character. But then, do you think it's just like he was uh, uh, such a francophile and didn't like England? Do you think that had a uh, th- uh, was a play here? You know, so I think at least if going back when we think of the, the French Revolution, so this was the French in, in the 1780s, one of the beneficial things of the American Revolution, and there were many benefits, although some historians, and this may come as a shock, they denigrate the revolution, was that it led to sort of similar revolutions in Europe of countries trying to overthrow their monarchies, establish some sort of, you know, quasi-constitutional democracy, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And this was initially a major impetus behind the French Revolution as many sort of supporters of the revolution supported the French. And they're like, oh, this is great. Uh, Rothbard talks about this in Conceived in Liberty, Volume 4. I believe the guy who is the age of revolutions might be this uh, Robert Palmer, I want to say. Um, But anyway, uh, the the issue was basically the problem with the, the, the French was the system was just too mercantilist and feudalist. Uh, so they had too many entrenched interests where it became more of like this. And then they had to fight a war against Great Britain and the rest of Europe while they were doing this. It sort of transformed, obviously, by the early 1790s into like this, you know, quasi anarchy, you know, very not free, not not pro market, et cetera, and so on. And this was a big issue. Uh if the Federalists were, you know, very pro Great Britain, the uh, Jeffersonians, uh, the Republicans were very pro French, and this kind of clouded both of their visions. I still think the Jeffersonians were more uh, peace loving than the um, uh, Federalists, which they were. I talk about this in my book. By the time of the Napoleonic uh, Wars, they had soured on the the French, but they still just hated the British more. And it was really one of these things when the situation was almost a little different now because now Great Britain was sort of fighting like this dictator, Napoleon, et cetera. We just should have stayed out of it. Um, but the Jeffersonians, they really, again, they're fixated on sort of the British Canada. So that's why they were always going to uh, sort of be more hostile to the British. Um, we don't have a whole lot more time, so I just want to tell people, and uh, it'll be again on the show notes page, decentralized revolution slash 59, and we'll be promoting it. Uh, you're going to be part of the, the take human action tour pilot event, which is uh, uh, Mises caucus is putting on this event. And if it goes well, which we uh, think and hope it will, uh, we want to take this to college campuses across uh, the country. Uh, it's uh, in Fairfax, Virginia, near George Mason, uh, Tom Woods, Dave Smith, the whole the whole gang uh, is, is going to be there. Uh, and uh, Patrick Newman has, uh, is the most recent addition to that lineup. Uh, do you do? You, and I don't expect you to 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 have an answer or 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 give away too much, but, uh, what, ex- do you know what you're going to be speaking about? Do you have an idea of, uh, of what you're going to bring to that day? Yeah. Uh, this talk, no, I'm kidding. Uh, I, so I'll be, I'll be talking about Austrian economics. Uh, so just going through kind of the basics, why it's important for people interested in liberty to learn, you know, et cetera. So just kind of like a crash course in Austrian economics. So I guess I'll be talking about the human action and the take human action back, I guess, so to speak. Yeah. And our, our hope is to get people, um, especially, you know, the, I would think that there's a lot of people at George Mason who are uh, maybe like some of the people I was talking about earlier, who are gen- generally free market, maybe Friedmanite libertarians, maybe mm-hmm. uh, Republican types who I think might be receptive to this. And I- I'm glad you're going to be uh, one of the ones uh, uh, making that that pitch to them. Yeah. Well, thank you. Appreciate that.
Okay. Well, yeah, we'll, uh, I'll have links to all your stuff on the show notes page and we'll have you back on, uh, cronyism, Liberty versus power in America forthcoming, forthcoming book. And you said that's going to come out around the time, like right before, right after the, it's going to come right after, right out, right after the event at the tentative release date is the Mises Institute supporter summit. So this is, I want to say October 21st to 23rd, but so basically it should be available at the Mises Institute bookstore and Amazon late October, mid to late October. Okay, great. We'll have you back on, uh, around that time if everything works out. So, uh, I really, yeah, I really thank you for your time and all all the great work you do. And, uh, yeah, thanks. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. And there you have it. I'd like to thank Patrick Newman for his time and wisdom and for agreeing to join us for the take human action tour pilot event on Saturday, October 2nd in Fairfax, Virginia. We anticipate that event will go well and it's a model for just that. We want to make it a tour, hopefully sometime uh, starting next year. Uh, you can join us uh, as well at that event to get things off to a good start by following the link at decentralizedrevolution.com slash 59. There you'll also find links to some of Patrick Newman's work and a couple of the things we talked about. Thanks to Dave versus Goliath for all the music you hear on Decentralized Revolution. And thanks to everyone who subscribes to our email list and gives to Mises Pack at TakeHumanAction.com and everyone who shares, rates, reviews, and subscribes to Decentralized Revolution. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.